0: I listen to The Diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to The Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina.
1: Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show.
0: That plant matter can be so thick... It's like being caught in a spider web, like you'll find yourself pushing with every part of your body, with your knees, with your hips, with your chest, with your face, with your elbows, and like no part of your body will be able to move. And you have to at a certain point recognize that you're totally trapped, held by plants. And at that point, the thing to do is just like stop moving, you can either fall forward, Or you can start breaking things off your body so you can take another step. It's that thick.
1: (laughs) This is Elsa Sebastian describing what it's like to move through a 20 to 30-year-old clear-cut in southeast Alaska.
0: When you think about the forests of southeast Alaska, everything that's in the understory of an old-growth forest is totally lacking for light. For one, I mean, this is a rainforest, so it's always cloudy and it's always dark. (laughs) For two, there's these big ancient trees that are filtering all of the light to that lower canopy. So when those trees are cut, everything starts growing and there's no order to it. Just like this free-for-all fight for the light, fight to like try to gain dominance. And it ends up choking out the landscape in this confusing mess of pokey, sharp, vicious plants.
1: Okay, so let's be real. I am willing to endure unpleasantries in the name of doing cool things. Certainly, I am willing to hike across terrible talus to get to an alpine climb. I will post hole through waist-deep snow to access a pretty cool ski line. But thrashing through old clear cuts is not pleasant. And I know this because that was Becca's old job. She used to do that for work. And sometimes I'd go join her. She'd be counting birds in these old clear cuts that have been burned. And It's not that fun. It's kind of incredible to me that anyone would want to take a precious month off work in the middle of their busy season and choose this as their adventure. But this August, that's exactly what Elsa did. This year, she left her boat in the harbor, and she and two other women spent a month bushwhacking across her home island, southeast Alaska's Prince of Wales Island. It was a creative effort to protect the remaining old-growth forest from the timber industry.
0: It doesn't matter how many people are testifying against a land sale or a timber sale, like it always just goes through anyway. So I think people are really disheartened and I think we need to reclaim public process. And I think the way we do that is by getting out into these threatened places and knowing them better than anybody else, knowing them better than the timber cruisers that are coming through and putting pink flagging on the big trees we have to be able to speak for these places to protect them. And to speak for these places, we have to get out and do things like this where we're camping in the rainforest. And right now as we're speaking, like we're getting pissed on by endless rain. But I'm convinced that it's worthwhile because for the rest of my life, when I advocate for this island, I'm going to be thinking of this place.
1: There's this idea that... In order to protect a place, you have to have a relationship with it. And, and I think that there's something, there's a nuance to that, I'd say. Because we can all advocate for wild places, but we don't necessarily need to all be able to go to the Arctic or to Prince of Wales Island or to Bears Ears or even to the Boundary Waters. But we do need people that are close to the ground, that have gotten curious, that have wondered what it's like. And we rely on these people to be our front line of defense and to do that, they need to have a relationship with that landscape. And sometimes it comes with an entry fee. And in this case, it's bushwhacking through a rain-soaked, ravaged forest. For the fourth installment of our Endangered Spaces series, our producer, Jen Alchell traveled north to Prince of Wales to join Elsa on her trek through a threatened forest to witness what's been lost and to understand what's left to be saved. Pack your rain gear. I'm Fitzgerald. And you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.
2: As the inner island ferry chugs away from the dock in Ketchikan, bound for Prince of Wales, salmon leap out of the water in its wake. Their dark gray bodies flash silver before they splash back into salt water, so dark under the low clouds it looks black. Twenty minutes in, the docks and moss covered roofs taper off. All you can see through the sheets of rain is ocean, mist, and endless islands covered in the green of cedar, spruce, and hemlock. And, 20 minutes in, I've been discovered by the first local. A man who wears the Southeast Alaska uniform of Carhartts and neoprene extra-tough boots, and looks into my eyes as he speaks. And that's Southeast Alaska in a nutshell. Trees, water, salmon, rain, rubber boots, rugged people who look you in the eye.
0: People don't pass judgment on each other. When you live in a place like this, even if you have political differences with your neighbors, you sort of have to take care of each other. And I think people really see each other for who they are and how they are in the world.
2: I arrived at the ferry terminal to find myself transported back in time about 20 years. The owner of the rental car company gave me instructions just to leave the car on the lot with the keys and the visor when I got back. Then he showed me the map of the island. The spare key, the full-size spare tire, and the jumper pack. He didn't ask if I knew how to use any of it. A certain level of competence is assumed here. The rental car man also interrogated me on where exactly I planned to drive before he agreed to rent me a Subaru Forester named Marissa, instead of one of the high-clearance pickups he prefers to send out. That's another defining part of Prince of Wales. Roads. Some 1,300 miles of maintained roads, plus hundreds of miles of roads in various states of repair, spiderweb across the 2,200-square-mile island. They're all old logging roads that slice through a patchwork of old-growth, temperate rainforest, and clear cuts in various stages of recovery. Elsa grew up in one of the few corners of Prince of Wales that the logging roads have not yet invaded. Point Baker. A tiny off-grid village on the northernmost tip of the island, accessible only by boat or float plane. Population 39 when Elsa was growing up less now. It
0: was a life in the middle of this wild place where we would spend the summers as a family aboard my parents' 42-foot wooden fishing boat, catching salmon and running up and down the wild coast of southeast
2: Alaska, exploring new places. When summer faded to fall, the family would return to their homestead to prepare for the winter, chop firewood, preserve fish, pick berries, hunt deer.
0: When you live in a community like Point Baker, you don't really fully know that you're a child. You're just one of few small people, and the work that you do reflects your size and your abilities. You're a part of the work and fabric of the community.
2: And in a place where people depend so intimately on the land, part of the work of the community is advocating for the environment they rely on. I grew up
0: watching everyone everyone in the community, even like the total hermits that never wanted to leave their little chunk of earth, come out and testify at these four service hearings. So it seemed very natural that as soon as I could piece together sentences that I would also stand up in testifying against these timber sales. And I think I was nine or 10 when I first made
2: testimony for the Tongass. The Tongass, the largest national forest in the United States dispersed along the inside passage of Southeast Alaska. When Alyssa hit high school, her family moved to Petersburg for the school year, which, with a whopping population of 2,000, felt enormous. I was
0: incredibly shy and didn't really know how to function in the world. Like, going into a grocery store and, like, taking something off the shelf and taking it up to the counter and buying it, that's something I had no relationship with And I had this
2: stutter, and I didn't really know what I had to offer the world. Things began to shift for Elisa when she joined a program that got rural kids involved in fighting climate change.
0: And I remember how awkward that was, like how uncomfortable people would be when this tiny girl with this totally overwhelming stutter would come and demand a recycling program. (laughs) But it was through speaking for the environment that I realized that I needed my voice, and that's how I shook my stutter. Like, I convinced myself that what I had to say was important enough, that people should listen, and coming out of a speech impediment and finding voice definitely brought me to the world of environmental work.
2: Elsa went to Wellesley for college. Summers, she went home to fish. When she graduated, she assumed she would return to Southeast and go to work for an environmental nonprofit, But ultimately, she decided to go back to fishing. She bought a hand trawler, then a power trawler, and for five years she spent her summers chasing salmon through Southeast Alaska and winters hunkered down on her boat.
0: One of the reasons why I decided to stay in commercial fishing was because I I wanted to stay connected to the culture of hard work that I had grown up in it's a way that people relate to each other, you know, like this is rugged country and to survive up here can be a lot of work. And it's a way that I feel connected to people in place. And it's hard to imagine how I will ever find a better way of connecting
2: to this place. But in January of 2017, Something happened that made Elisa decide that she needed to leave her beloved boat, the Lena, in the harbor and spend her first summer ever ashore. In January of 2017, Alaska Representative Don Young introduced H.R. 232, the State National Forest Management Act of 2017. The proposed bill would transfer up to 2 million acres of the Tongass National Forest to the state of Alaska. Much of that land would come from Prince of Wales. The basic underlying rationale is that when Alaska was purchased from Russia in 1867, the rest of the country viewed it as a remote chunk of uninhabitable land that would provide resources for the lower 48. Alaska didn't actually become a state until 1959. Over 60% of Alaska is federally owned. The state claims they don't have enough resources to take care of their own citizens. This is not the first proposal to transfer portions of the Tongass out of federal hands. In fact, Senator Murkowski and Representative Young have introduced so many bills like H.R. 232 that many of the people I talked to either hadn't heard about this particular bill or confused it with a previous proposal. The forests of Prince of Wales have been chewed through faster than anywhere else in southeast Alaska. On the north end of the island, 94% of the big, low-elevation trees have already been cut. Much of the reason is that Prince of Wales is the fourth-largest island in the U.S., if you count Puerto Rico. But it's home to only 5,600 people.
1: And so it's cut Prince of Wales because we don't have the population fight back.
2: This is Roy Clark. For 25 years, he worked as a timber sale administrator for the Forest Service on Prince of Wales. Essentially, he made sure the logging companies adhered to the regulations outlined in their contracts.
1: I do believe in timber harvest. But right now, I think it's almost like a a perfect storm for the island. The state's cutting, the Forest Service is cutting, native corporations are cutting. It's all occurring at once, and I, I believe it's just taken too much.
2: When a chunk of the forest near Sitka, Juneau, or Ketchikan gets set on the chopping block, the larger populations stand up to defend their special places. To keep everyone happy again and again, a piece of this remote island gets offered up in its place. Prince of Wales is a sacrifice zone. And not everyone on the island sees that as a problem. Here's Dennis Watson, the mayor of Craig, the largest town on the island.
1: Where we should start is the importance of the forest industry to this island and that one of the primary things is the sawmill in co Viking lumber.
2: Viking, the largest remaining sawmill in southeast Alaska and the biggest local advocate for the land transfer. Viking employs 45 full-time mill workers. Even for Prince of Wales, it's a tiny number, less than a percent of the population. But when you subtract the people on Prince of Wales too young or too old to work, that percentage goes up. And then there are the rest of the jobs the mill provides indirectly. Jobs building roads and cutting trees. The gas stations, power plants, grocery stores, bars and restaurants, etc. that those people keep in business. And the families those people support. And when you take all of that into account, you start to get a true sense for what this mill means to Prince of Wales. Viking is owned by the Dahlstroms, Kirk and his son Bryce who bought the existing mill after regulations designed to protect the spotted owl drove them north from the Olympic Peninsula in Washington state. The mill exclusively processes old-growth trees. Their machinery simply isn't designed to cut anything smaller. But the other part of the reality is it costs so much to ship timber from southeast Alaska to, well, anywhere, really, that the mill stays in business, and barely by clear-cutting large stands of old growth. Financially, it doesn't even make sense for them to bid on smaller timber sales. National Environmental Protection Act, or NEPA regulations, environmental lawsuits, and public comment periods mean that the Forest Service takes a long time, years often, to offer up any timber sales off the Tongass. At this rate, the Dahlstroms say the mill will go under soon. Here's Dennis again.
1: I can tell you from the beginning, I didn't like the idea of the land transfer. I thought, let's leave it with the Forest Service and just see if we can get them to do something that's a little bit more acceptable. Well, we never could. If they were doing their job, we wouldn't be doing this. Moving some of the Thomas timberlands into a state forest seems to be the only answer now.
2: There's another thing that's important to understand about the debate over this land transfer. Most places in the country, debates over public land use sever along predictable lines to grossly oversimplify gun-toting, ATV-riding conservatives on one side, tree-hugging, granola-crunching liberals on the other. Southeast Alaska doesn't work that way. Everyone hunts, everyone fishes, everyone chops their own firewood. Brent Cole Sr. worked in the oil fields of Montana, then moved to southeast Alaska and worked for a logging outfit for the better part of a decade. Now, he and his family run Alaska Specialty Woods, a small business that makes high-end soundboards from salvaged old growth. I'm
1: very much a constitutionalist. I'm not opposed to moving lands from federal control
2: to state control where it should be. But I wonder if the state is really able to manage it. The U.S. Forest Service seems to be doing not too bad of a job, but I think the state is even worse at it now.
0: I saw this map for what would be the state of Alaska's timber forest. And it was hard not to notice that a good portion of those lands were coming
2: off of Prince of Wales. The Tongass is huge, 17 million acres. But the vast majority of that land is covered in mountains, glaciers, treeless bogs, nutrient-poor hillsides that only support small trees, or second-growth forest. Only about 4% of the Tongass holds the giant, sprawling trees the timber industry and old-growth-dependent wildlife rely on. When Elsa saw that map of the potential state selections, she felt like she was looking at a map of the remaining old growth on Prince of Wales. The very things that excited the mill workers and loggers about the land transfer worried Elsa. The state doesn't have to adhere to the same environmental restrictions as the federal government, and they don't have to hold public comment periods in order to make a timber sale.
0: The ironic thing there is that local management often means that local voices get left out.
2: Continuing to fish and testify at the odd Forest Service hearing, it wasn't going to work. If Elisa really wanted to advocate for her home island, she had to dream up a new way to go about it.
0: One of the things that I love about living in Alaska and one of the things that I miss most desperately when I'm gone is the way people value experience. I would never be able to go to a bar in Boston and New York and impress anybody. Like, I'm not very cultured. I'm terrible at small talk. But what I'm able to talk about in a bar in Alaska is about the things that I've done, you know, about that big fish I caught or that mountain I climbed. And so I sort of instinctively knew that, I needed to be able to tell a story about my home. That that would be something that people could comprehend.
2: What Elsa came up with was a plan to bushwhack through every state forest selection on Prince of Wales, to ground truth, to see for herself what's been destroyed and what's still intact. Over the following months, Elsa coerced two other women to join her on her track, Natalie Dawson and Mara Menahan. These days, Natalie's a biology professor at the University of Montana. But before that, she spent a decade earning her Ph.D. by bushwhacking through the Tongass by herself, carrying a shotgun for protection against bears, and researching pine marten. And when she told me that she thought this project made sense,
0: that's when I really started moving on it.
2: Mara is a friend and former student of Natalie's and a brilliant botanical illustrator.
3: Elsa was like, what are you doing for the
2: month of August?
3: And I had not met Elsa. She's like, well, why don't you just join me for the whole month? And uh,
2: it worked great. The plan was set. Elsa would start the trek alone. Then Mara would show up. Then Natalie. In total, they would try to cover 200 miles of the endangered forest. I started the track on the north end of the island from my home village. Elisa planned to bushwhack 35 miles to stay off of logging roads, and trails are not really a thing on the island. But despite having grown up on Prince of Wales, it was the first real time she had spent in the backcountry. It's just not really a thing people do there.
0: There's people who will spend a lot of time in the backcountry hunting. But loading up a backpack and going for a month-long adventure is pretty unique.
2: In that first selection, Alyssa realized she needed to adjust her expectations. To move through this landscape isn't really hiking. It's more route-finding around water, trees, and brush, kicking steps into pine-needle-covered hillsides, or high-stepping onto exposed roots, planting your butt on hip-high logs and swinging your legs over to the other side, or otters sliding down steep ravines with a plant belay and hoping the water you land in at the bottom doesn't slop over the rim of your 15-inch rubber boots. This wasn't a journey where she could measure success in number of miles, just constant adjustment and readjustment of routes and lots of time built in for unanticipated delays.
0: But ultimately, moving slow through a place does allow you to really come to know it. Even though we're not covering the miles, the way we're coming to know this place goes beyond what my expectations were.
2: On that first leg, Alicia also had to admit that She couldn't do the trek without logging roads.
0: The other thing that I became aware of is the importance of logging roads as connections for wildlife. In an area where there's so much of the destruction that comes after clear-cut logging, animals like myself are moving on those logging roads.
2: Part of what makes cuts so hard to walk through is that the forest floor is covered in a layer of treetops, branches, trees too small to take to the mill. The debris of logging, and in 20- to 30-year-old clear cuts, that layer of leg-swallowing slash has not yet had time to decompose, and it's disguised by a thick layer of vegetation. There are two things that I heard again and again from people in support of the land transfer. One, Prince of Wales still has a healthy population of black bear, wolf, and deer. I see them all the time on the roads. They would offer as proof. Two, animals love clear cuts. They see deer and bear and cuts all the time. And that's true in cuts up to 10 years old. More light on the ground means more berries and forage. Older cuts, animals can't move through with much, if any, more ease than people.
0: When you love a place, you often don't really look at the scars. These lands I'd been looking at for my entire life, I had just been ignoring the fact that they were clear-cut. So to have to comprehend the scale of loss that has already occurred on this island was surprising and pretty disheartening at first. The second selection was all in this place, Morris Sound.
2: Two of Ellis' fishing friends agreed to support that second leg of the trek with their boat, the Tarka. And it was the point where Mara would join the hike. And
3: uh, my directions from Elsa were like, okay, I'll text you on the morning that you're going to fly in, and you're going to have to get on the Hollis Ferry, and there's going to be a boat called the Tarka, and we're going to pick you up. And I didn't know Elsa or, like, what the Tarka was.
2: The Tarka picked up Mara and motored south to Mora Sound.
3: As you come to the shore in southeast Alaska, it's usually a rocky coast that's covered in barnacles, and there's mussel shoals and seaweed. And then you've got, like, beach grass. And then it's just forest. Dark, dark forest. Like, you know when you're in a city and people put lots of trees next to each other to make a hedge to keep people out? That is what breaking into the forest is like. There's a hedge and you gotta like, muscle your way through it. But then once you get in, if you're lucky and it's old growth, it opens up into this like, room and it's so green. There's a quality of the light there that is so different from anywhere else. On a sunny day, the light comes in and it's dappled and really really enchanting like it's the enchanted forest up in southeast
2: that room in morris sound was made up of 500 to 1,000 year old cedar trees
0: and there's just something really awe-inspiring about moving through a forest that is so old i mean a cedar tree that's 500 years old like Where was the United States founded in that tree's history?
2: (laughs) For five days, Elsa and Mara explored Mora Sound. During the day, they would bushwhack over ridge lines. In the evenings, they would make their way back to the Tarka. One day, they found themselves in a gorgeous cove.
0: There was a black bear wandering around and some sandhill cranes in the grass. And so I leave Mara down on the beach where she's working on these illustrations. And I push up into the forest and i came to this colossal cedar tree just this gorgeous gorgeous tree and there's pink flagging on the tree and there's pink flagging like leading a path down to the beach and i started seeing that that flagging all over when you're adventuring in endangered lands what can be the most challenging is whenever you're confronted by beauty, you are overcome by it, but then almost immediately you recognize that it's endangered. And that started to crystallize for me and more sound that holy shit, this thing that we have set out to do is going to be heartbreaking.
2: From Mora Sound, Elisa and Mara thrashed their way north to their next selection, Chomley Sound. Out of the heater dominant forests and into the Sitka Spruce.
0: And the clearcuts that have happened in Chomley are really extreme. I remember being shocked these huge, like bouldery, lumpy, impressive ridgelines had somehow been clear-cut logged.
2: In the heyday of logging in southeast Alaska, the spruce were the first to go. The unusually tall, straight, strong, and lightweight wood with its consistent grain found a place in the frames of the airplanes of World War I and World War II. In the 50s, the old-growth spruce giants were fed into federally subsidized pulp mills and turned into rayon and baby diapers. The slow-growing cedar trees full of knots and gnarls, were passed over, until they were the only big trees left. Now, Viking lumber processes almost exclusively old-growth cedar.
0: Probably 20, 30 years ago, those lands wouldn't be valuable to the timber industry like they are now. So as an environmentalist, you just have to continually fight. When we were in Craig, there were people there that love this forest and they just welcomed us with open arms, fed us amazing dinners, and let us take over their homes. And the reason why is because those people have been fighting for a long time to protect this island. And I think to see Mara and Natalie and myself like coming in, it gives those folks a lot of hope.
2: From Chomley Sound, the Tarka motored north to pick up Natalie, but got caught in a storm on the way to Hollis and showed up a day late.
0: But Natalie being Natalie just, like, found a bush to sleep under or whatever and was fine.
2: Actually, maybe the best illustration of how comfortable Natalie is in southeast Alaska is when I asked her about the worst moment of the trek. Worst moment was realizing that I potentially forgot my toothbrush
3: when I got to Hollis right before I met these guys, and there's like, there's no store in Hollis,
0: <laughs> which actually sent me into a state of panic, unlike anything else. <laughs> I'll take a river crossing a barren counter any day, but like five days without a toothbrush. That's a really long time for me to not brush my teeth. <laughs> Turns out I had it.
2: Elsa and Natalie met each other in person for the first time at the Hollis Ferry Terminal. Their next selection would take them east to west across the midsection of Prince of Wales, an area that the Forest Service calls The Matrix. Mm-hmm. a jumble of different so management because zones sliced was, like, through by logging else. roads.
3: Yeah, he well, mentioned it being a habitat corridor.
2: Yep. Yeah, that map shows it as like one distinct major thing. It's actually these clumps. Mm-hmm. So what this looks like on satellite imagery is a patch here, patch here, patch here of cuts. And then those things in between are what they called old growth reserves.
0: I mean, that has to be the reason why they've selected these areas, right, for those old growth reserves.
2: Partway through the Cross Island journey, the three women retreated to the town of Craig yeah, to resupply, I, dry out, and collect me to join them for a couple I days. That, I met right? them for a home cooked sure, meal at the home of Ellis's friend Mike, a retired charter captain and a conservationist and in his own right. I watched as they poured over and maps and finalized our route for the next few days. I'm I'm so interested to see like based on what we've been told now what the land actually looks like.
3: What's <laughs> in there. reality? Yeah, It's still there?
0: Yeah. Wait a second! Wait a second! Our day of sunshine disappeared. <laughs> there was a day of sunshine earlier when I looked at this forecast.
2: next day, it was forecast to rain four to seven inches. That day. I was the only one who mentioned the weather.
3: I had definitely been warned of how rainy it was, but didn't quite understand the fact that you're really in a forest and it's dark and dank and wet. And so I had to have a little mental check in with myself, knowing like I'm here for a month and I had to sort of be like, all right, that's what this trip is going to be. Like, I just won't dry out. I won't dry out.
2: We piled into Mike's pickup, and an hour later, he deposited us on a nondescript gravel logging road. We climbed into our rubber coatings and began to walk.
3: Hey, Bear! Woohoo! Woo! Hey, Bear! Hey, bear. Woo!
2: We stayed on the road for a while, then ducked onto the springy surface of the forest and began to rely on a map and compass to navigate. Many of the hills are too tall to see over, and with 100-foot contour lines, you can't assume they'll show up on the map. It's similar with streams. In a landscape so saturated with and defined by water, you can't trust that anything shy of a knock-you-off-your-feet river will show up on a map. Even that isn't always predictable. As the light began to fade, we pitched our tents and tarps. Elisa and Mara celebrated what a spectacular campsite we'd found. I spent most of the night trying to pull my upper body back to the top of the tent without waking up a sleeping Elsa. Her feet were a solid two feet lower than her head's.
0: Gosh, it's mornings like these where I remember that I did not duct tape the hole on my rain pants seat. (laughs) One more thing I forgot to do in Craig.
2: Before we started hiking, I realized I had a particular image in my head of old growth—massive, ancient trees too big in diameter to wrap your arms around, like the cedars Alisa and Mara saw in Morris Sound. As we traveled through the landscape marked Old Growth Reserve on the map, I quickly learned that old growth, for the Forest Service, sometimes simply means never been cut. The soil is often too poor in nutrients, or the banks too steep to support giant, ant style trees. And sometimes the Forest Service just had the map wrong. The final half-mile to the logging road where I'd stashed Marissa was labeled Old Growth Reserve. It led us straight through an 80-year-old cut. That few hundred yards took us an hour and a half to shove our way through.
0: You have what is called stem exclusion phase, when trees have all grown up to a certain height, and there's so many of them, and they're so thick, that none of them actually really get enough light to be healthy.
3: The canopies are totally enclosed and there's no light that reaches the floor.
0: The ground is bare. And when you emerge, you're just covered in slime.
3: (laughs) There's nothing growing in there, so nothing lives in there. It's hard to even find evidence of like a mouse or a wolf.
0: And there's so little activity within a forest like that, that there is standing dead. So as you're moving through, you'll be knocking over these sickly trees. It's like the forest that
3: Hansel and Gretel get molested in. (laughs) It's really spooky.
2: What became clear to me walking through that 80-year-old cut is how truly unlikely of an idea it is to transition to second-growth logging in southeast Alaska, at least in our lifetime. Those trees are nearly a century old, and most are no bigger around than an algae water bottle. They need desperately to be thinned. But if the timber industry is barely scraping a profit by clear-cutting virgin old growth, it's hard to imagine that anyone is actually going to pay for the tremendous amount of work it would take to manage these forests.
3: I think people like to say like, what is a renewable resource because it grows back. But the trees that we were seeing in some of these like really beautiful old growth areas were, I mean, the oldest ones are 2000 years old. And you have to think about logging on a timescale that's comparable to how old those trees are. Because you're in this temperate rainforest, you're mining ancient trees from an already fragile landscape.
0: Last day of that trek, we hiked into this little protected area alongside Saney Creek.
3: And then all of a sudden we just started to see wildlife sign again. And it was like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. There were just so many critters. We saw eagles right away and salmon in the water and found Pine Martin skull and then went out to the beach and saw fresh wolf prints. And then the most amazing thing in that area were these trees that had been marked 100, 200 years ago with stone tools called adzes that the Tlingit or the Haida people used to cut into trees and check for heart rot. If the tree had heart rot, they would abandon cutting it down. But if it was a good tree, they would have used it for a canoe log or a totem pole. It's like seeing pictographs or petroglyphs and the southwest.
0: And that area had been left intact because Stainy Creek supports salmon runs.
2: And this is perhaps the real key to understanding the potential impact of this land transfer. When the Forest Service logs part of the Tongass, they have to leave three types of areas intact. Wildlife corridors, stream buffers, and beach fringe. The wildlife corridors are essentially uncut highways that allow animals to move from one patch of old-growth habitat to another. The stream buffers protect the waters where salmon return to spawn. If the large trees that shade the streams are removed, the temperature of the water rises and no longer holds enough oxygen for the fish. Beach fringe is essentially a buffer zone of big trees along the coastline. It provides habitat, and it acts as a buffer to prevent the less-rugged trees further inland from blowing over in one of the perpetual storms off the Pacific.
3: God bless beach fringe. Like, we hiked for five days across the Steeny Creek watershed, and pretty much the only old growth that we found were these areas that had been protected that were along rivers, that were salmon streams, or areas along the beach.
2: Those in favor of the land transfer insist that the state of Alaska has to and will adhere to sustainable logging practices. But if these swaths of wildlife corridors, stream buffers, and beach fringe are all that's left of the really big, old trees on many of the parcels the state of Alaska says it wants, it's hard to believe they really intend to leave these last reserves standing. The last selection Elisa and Mara hike led them through Big Thorn, the site of the largest timber sale the Tongass has seen in the last 20 years. And
0: the first day we got dropped off, within hours we were in the freshest clear-cut we had seen. It was probably just a few years old. And it was just all like black earth, stumps, shards of cedar trees, big heaps of logs by the side of the road. The real notable thing about this final selection was that my body just started to wear out.
2: The light had begun to fade. A massive storm was forecast to blow in that night.
0: And we were looking for a campsite, and there was just nowhere. It was so battered. The sides of the roads were all blowdowns, and both of us were nervous about finding a place where we could sit out this storm and not have trees blow down on us.
2: Just as night started to fall in earnest, Elisa and Mara found a big clump of trees and pitched their tent.
0: We spent the next two days there because it turned out that's when I realized I had giardia. (laughs) Finally,
2: Elisa admitted that she couldn't hike out and they called a friend to pick them up. And that's how the trip ended. In a tent, in a rainstorm, under a last stand of old-growth trees, amidst a jumble of clear cuts and logging roads. To transfer this land into state hands so it can be logged faster and with less restriction, it's prolonging the death of an industry on life support, and doing so at the expense of the remaining fish and wildlife populations and the health of the fishing and tourism industries. Arguably, tourism and fishing, if managed properly, are both renewable resources. Even from a purely financial point of view, this is short-sighted. Salmon depend on these ecosystems to spawn, In Southeast Alaska, the seafood and tourism industries make up 10% of the regional economy apiece. The timber industry accounts for less than 1%. On Prince of Wales itself, it's more. The timber industry makes up more like 12% of the local economy. But the point is, it's an industry on the way out, and it's tiny. The notion that the timber industry just needs enough old growth to get it through the next 10, 15, 20 years until the second-growth trees grown big enough to harvest. Based on what Elisa Mara and Natalie saw, cutting second-growth is just not going to pencil out in the foreseeable future. Maybe ever. For the time being, H.R. 232 appears to have stalled out in Congress. But for Elisa that doesn't mean she intends to ease up or slow down on her mission to better understand and advocate for her home. Even if this bill doesn't go through, there will be another.
0: I've gotten myself into this thing where I think I probably won't let up. Probably next spring, I'm going to take my boat and go and anchor out near these remaining selections and just get up there and see what's there, because at this point, I just have this curiosity about what's left and what the character is of this island, and I need to know.
3: We think of the era of exploration being over, right? Like, places have been explored, things are on the map. But with this place and this practice of ground truthing, it's like we're exploring Prince of Wales in its present state, which no one does. No one does. Nobody walks through clearcuts. This felt like, yeah, we're looking into the dirty parts of public lands and I think that is a type of modern-day exploration that's really important and meaningful.
0: As we see wild places continue to be compromised, I think it's really important to face that. And ultimately, that's what ground-truthing is. It's bearing witness to what has been done, and it's trying to really understand and value and celebrate what remains. I'll probably be trying to fight for Prince of Wales Island for the rest of my life.
2: Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia who would like to make sure you know that the president stole your land. In the largest elimination of protected land in American history, the president just dramatically reduced the size of Bears Ears and Grand Escalante National Monuments. Learn how you can take action to protect our public lands at patagonia.com. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, who just launched a beautiful new website that makes it easier than ever to find the perfect bike rack. Check it out at Kuatracks.com. And support comes from Vossen Brewing. The team at Vossen is passionate about being outside, staying active, and giving back to the community. So they launched an ambassador program to support folks who feel the same. Like hiker James Linton, who reminds us to take on new adventures, whether it's just hiking along the river or flying to a different state for a 24-hour summit attempt. Meet the vagabonds at vossenbrewing.com. Whether it's a donation, t t-shirt purchase, or a note of thanks, you, our listeners, truly keep the Diaries thriving. If you donate to the show, you can still get a download of your very own Dirtbag Diaries theme song, Ringtone. Get stoked for your next adventure every time someone calls. To pledge your support, just go to our website, DirtbagDiaries.com, and click the button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much to everyone who has contributed already. A huge thank you to Elisa, Mara, and Natalie for their work to better understand and advocate for our forests and for being the best rainforest bushwhacking companions I could have asked for. Elisa and Natalie are planning their next ground-truthing adventure for this coming summer. To learn more about the project, visit laststands.org. Mara is currently bikepacking and illustrating the 1,700-mile Baja Divide Trail. You can find her art at maramenahan.com. Music today from Vienna Ditto, the Free Harmonic Orchestra, Fog Lake, Kai Engel, Jason Dyler burton Sergi Cherimizinoff, MC Kulla, Bradley Carter, and Jeff Pratt. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by Becca Cajal and me, Jen Alchul. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Make it to see
1: my next sunrise And I'll be home by Christmas time
3: if the clinch feel real gets through